how are we to view God's law? Um, what are we to make of God's law? And what should be our response to all God's law? It'd be clear to, or it'd be easy to perhaps caricature the way the world sees God's law. So the world would describe, well, if you think of a God who's got laws, surely that can't be any sort of good God, can it? A God who wants to box me in with his laws, restrict me, deny me my freedoms, deprive me of the things I enjoy. Perhaps people look into history and see, well, God's laws have been used in the past to manipulate and control and even exploit the most vulnerable in society. I don't want anything to do with these laws of God. For the world, the idea of God's laws are just a complete turn-off. The exact opposite of all that people seem to be searching for. And so, I'm not certain how many evangelistic messages over the years would have started with a presentation of the Ten Commandments and, and an offer of, to people to consider how good it might be to start following them. For Christians, we're not immune to this type of thinking towards God's law. It's easy for us, isn't it, to take verses from uh, those favourite books of ours in in the New Testament, places like Romans or Galatians, uh, and pick out little phrases that say things like, we've been set free from the law. We're no longer under the law. We've been released to the law. We've died to the law. And by clinging to such little uh, phrases, we... Wash our hands of the law. We've had done with that. We've turned aside from it. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free, we might love to say. And if we're not careful, by taking those words of Paul out of context, we can cause them to mean something that Paul never intended them to mean. And so, with those little phrases in hand, then we come across words of Jesus, where Jesus says things like, You are my friends if you do what I command... And we get into all sorts of confusion. How do these commands of Jesus fit with this freedom from law that I love to hold on to? Or perhaps we wonder quite what Paul means when we read the start of Romans and he says, um, I'm preaching to people the obedience that comes through faith. And we scratch our heads thinking, hang on, I thought obedience and faith were never allowed in the same sentence anymore. Or perhaps we get confused when we get to Peter and we see Peter instructing us to be holy in all you do just as he who called you is holy. We're thinking, hang on, he's taking them words out of the law that I'm supposed to be free from. So how do we reconcile then this this freedom that we've been given in Christ and also the command of God to follow his law, to be obedient? We need some clarity as Christians on how we stand in relation to God's law. What place does it have in our lives and how should we view God's law in light of Christ having paid the penalty for sin on our behalf? And so we're going to try and answer that question this evening by looking at Psalm 19. So it would be helpful to have it out in front of you. David starts this psalm, verses 1 to 6, by pointing us first to the glory of God. It points us to the glory of God as seen in creation. It's like he says, look, do you want to know something of the glory of God? Do you want to know something of his power? Do you want to know something of his strength? Do you want to know something of his goodness, of his eternity? Then look at the creation around you. Look particularly at the skies. Look at the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech. What are they talking about? 
they're talking about the glory of God. Look up into the sky. Look up into the night sky, David says, uh, verse 2. Night after night, they display knowledge. Look up into the night sky and what do you see? Stars. How many stars? Thousands? Millions? Billions? Trillions? Just to illustrate the difference between a million and a billion. Okay, A billion is a big number. Okay. Imagine a million seconds. You can sort of get your head around a million. It's a, it's a, a thousand thousand. Okay. So that's a million. How, how long does a million seconds take? Twelve days. Roughly. Thereabouts. Now have a little guess in your mind how long you think a billion seconds is. Maybe a month. Maybe a few months. Thirty-two years. Okay. 32 years, that's it. 32 years is a billion seconds. You look up into the night sky and we can see 10 billion galaxies. 300 years to look at each of the galaxies for one second. And in each galaxy, there are 100 billion stars. There are a billion trillion stars in the known universe. And God knows where each one of them is. He knows the size of it. He knows how old it is. He knows what's spinning round it. He knows the distance, one from the other. He put each in its place and he holds them all in his hand. A billion trillion stars in his hand. And night after night, they display the glory of God. Not just for a select few to see. You don't have to go on a special holiday to see this wonder of God. Night after night, you can go out your back door and look up into the skies and see this display of knowledge. And of all them stars, just existing, just glorifying God by their vastness, by their size, by their beauty, of all those billions of stars, which is the most significant? Which is the most important? It's our sun, isn't it, of course? Verse 5, In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. He's reserved a special place for our sun. It's the only star that we know of that will support life. Any life at all, the scientists say. It's this sun. And there it is, rising upon us every day. Rising like a champion, ready to run its course for us, coming forth from his pavilion. It rises at one end of the heavens, makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. As it travels its uh, circuit across the sky, it shines its light down upon the earth. Now remember this just for a moment, that, that this psalm was written in Israel where the heat and light of the sun is intense. It beams down and, and fills every little nook and cranny. It burns things that are not prepared for it. And yet, as well as its power, it brings life. It brings warmth. Plants and animals are wired up to... The plants, as they grow, naturally know which way the sun is. And they're reaching out towards it, spreading out leaves to catch as much light as they can from the sun. The sun brings uh, life. The heat from the sun drives things like uh, the water cycle, 
brings rain up from the sea and, and dumps it down upon the mountains to water the earth. The, the sun brings change and growth and the sun highlights impurity and burns up defects. It fills every nook and cranny of the earth. And so it's a natural step for David after considering the sun and the glory that it shows us of God to then move on in verse 7 to consider the law of God. If the sun, as chief of the heavens, brings so much glory to God, acting as this all-filling, inescapable presence that brings life and warmth and, and comfort to the earth, then how much more God's law It does the same role, but in the spiritual realm, as it were, rather than in the physical realm. The law of the Lord is perfect, David starts, verse 7. Now let's be careful at this point about what David means by the law. Because it would be easy to use our Christian synonyms and say, oh, what David means by the law is, it's just the word of God. Oh yeah, of course, when we talk about the word of God, we mean the good bits, like the gospel. And, and Romans, we like that bit, you know. And Revelation about the future, you know, we like that bit. These are the perfect bits of God's law. All these uh, enjoyable, uh, helpful, uh, gospel-based messages. But look at the synonyms that David uses. He starts by talking about the law. He then goes on to talk about the statutes, the precepts, the commands, the fear of the Lord. The ordinances of the Lord. David isn't restricting his praise of the law to just certain aspects, the saving acts of God. David is talking here about the commands that God lays upon his people. The Ten Commandments, you might say. The the instructions that God gives for us to follow. The way in which God expects us to live. These are the things that David's talking about. And David says those things are perfect. Those things revive the soul like the sun gives life God's law brings life to the soul these things make wise the simple like the sun gives light so that we can see what's going on God's law gives light for us to understand and live in wisdom the law gives joy to the heart bringing warmth and comfort and encouragement to us just like the warmth and comfort of having the sun beating down upon your back Uh, later of an evening. The commands of God are radiant or clean. The fear of the Lord is pure. Just like the sun can act as as a disinfectant. It acts to clean and to purify and to burn up. David says, just like the sun acts in the physical realm, the law acts in the spiritual realm. Now what, what causes David to think of the law in this way? The instructions of God. Why does David say these instructions, these commands of God are pure, are good, are joy-giving, are life-giving, are reviving? Why does he say that? Well, consider what David might be able to compare them to. If you know something about the history of of Israel and the way they live in in, uh, the biblical accounts, you'll know they didn't always follow God's law. Often you'll find them straying from God's law and instead following the law of other gods from the nations around them. And the gods of the nations around them instruct them to do things like taking their children and offering them in the fire as a sacrifice to that god. The gods of the nations around them cause them to take uh, young girls and offer them in sacred prostitution. 
in temple shrines. And when David looks at the way Israel has acted in obedience to these other gods of the nations around them, he sees obedience that leads to um, violence, selfishness, viciousness. He sees gods who despise the life of the most vulnerable and become a cause of slavery and abuse to so many in society. And so when David compares God's commands with those religions of the nations around them, what does he see except life and goodness and protection from the weak and provision from the poor? David sees in God's instruction a God who loves, a God who is concerned for his people, a God who prompts true morality and goodness instead of the viciousness and selfishness of the nations around and so David says, these commands of God, verse 10, they are, they are more precious than gold. They are sweeter than honey. Now, the times might have changed from when David first wrote this psalm to, to what we see today. But surely the assessment is similar. So you could look at the world around us, for example, and say, okay, well, the culture in Britain, we might, we might recognize the need for generosity. And it might be a good thing in our culture to, to give to others, to give to charity. It becomes something that you can even tell others about. Look at this giving I've done. We recognise the need for generosity. But the problem is, with the, with the agnostic or, or atheistic worldview that so many ride upon, at the end of the day, there's, there's little or no basis for such generosity. There's no reason or need for us to be generous. God's law, on the other hand, commands generosity of his people. It commands that we share with the poor. And the basis is the generosity that he first shows to us. The, the command is backed up with a basis. And the evidence shows, when you, when you study who is it that's doing the giving, that those from religious households are giving four times as much as those who are from irreligious households. It's this basis that God provides for us that leads to the enacting of what people already consider to be the right thing to do. Or, for example, you could look at um, another way the culture deals with uh, life in the area of marriage. What does our culture say about marriage? Marriage is a good thing. Uh, generally, it's considered to be only right if it's monogamous. And yet marriage is only good as long as the marriage lasts, really, in today's culture, in Britain. Keep, keep your marriage alive, and, well, until it dies. Until the romance loses its spark. Until it's inconvenient to be with that person anymore. Until it gets too difficult. And then, just follow the pattern of the world. Jump ship. Find someone else. There's no fault divorce. Just follow those prenuptials that you agreed beforehand because really everybody knew it was going to end this way anyway. God's law says, no, marriage is serious. It's a serious commitment between the two of you. It's a serious commitment between the two of you and the society around you. And marriage is not to be tossed away just as feelings ebb and flow, but marriage is to be committed to as long as each party is able. And again, the evidence supports the benefits of marriage. It shows that God's way is the right way. 
And so you'll see correlation between marriage and all sorts of other statistics. For example, the mental health status of the people in the marriage. The education and the social development of children. Crime rates. Happiness and satisfaction are all linked to this commitment of marriage as God instructs. You could go on this way and look at almost any area of life and see that the way the world lives is inferior to the way God commands us to live. And it's down essentially to the fact that whatever the world around us says about how we should live and what is the right thing to do, ultimately, at the bottom of the agnostic or atheistic worldview of the culture around us, ultimately, there is no purpose. We're here by chance. We're a random collection of atoms uh, jumbled together. There's no purpose, and, and if there's no purpose, there's no inherent value. God's law, on the other hand, starts and operates on the principle that you have been made. You have been made for a purpose. And because you have been made by a God who knows you and loves you, because you have been made for a purpose, you have inherent value. Every person in the society has value, whether it's the unborn or the very elderly, whether it's the mentally unstable or the physically disabled, whether it's the male or whether it's the female, whether it's the rich or the poor, whether it's the famous or the unknown. God's law provides the unchanging basis of equal value for all of these groups of people in society. And it's only God's law that can lead us to live in a way that is right. The more we look into God's law, the more we consider the, the demands of God's law upon our lives, the more we realise the way God wants us to live, the more we realise then these laws of God aren't designed to restrict us. They're not designed to box us in and to take away our freedoms. The laws of God aren't designed to manipulate us or exploit the vulnerable. The laws of God are given to help us. They're given to help us and those around us enjoy the fullness of life that we've been designed for. And Jesus sums up the laws of God in these two commands. One of the commands, he says, is love your neighbour as yourself. And so much of the world around us would jump on that and say, yes, that's what we want. But the problem is, they've no basis for obeying that command. They've no basis for following it. They've no drive. There's no motivation to do it because at the end of the day, it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's every man for himself. It's love yourself most first. And if you've got any left, share it with those around you. Whereas God's law says, love your neighbour as yourself because there's a law that comes before that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This becomes the basis then for loving your neighbour as yourself. So as Christians, we learn to say with David that these laws of God, the commands that he places upon our life, are, in the end, more precious than gold, than much pure gold. We, we can say with David that in keeping them, verse 11, there is great reward. There is satisfaction. But we've got to be careful. Because in acknowledging the goodness of the law, it's possible to take a wrong turn. It's possible to see and know that God's law is good. To be enamoured with God's law. To seek to obey it in every area of life. 
to recognise that God's law is righteous and trustworthy and true and the only right standard of morality. It's possible to recognise all them things and yet have the wrong attitude towards the law. Jesus told a story of two men who both had this attitude towards the law. They would both have said, the law is good. The law is righteous. The first man entered the temple. And as he entered the temple, he began to pray. He looked up to heaven and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like the robbers. I'm not like the evildoers. I'm not like the adulterers. I'm not like those who break your commands. God, I thank you that I'm not one of those who breaks the commands, but I'm one of those who keeps them. Thank you that you've opened my eyes. Thank you that you've shown me how to live in the way uh, that you instruct us. Thank you that I know your righteous instruction and that I keep it. This first man recognises the goodness of God's law. And he's measured himself against it. And he considers himself to have kept it. The first man considers himself worthy of that great reward that David talks about in verse 11. The second man also comes into the temple. This man also recognises the goodness of God's law. He recognises that it's right. He recognises that it teaches the difference between right and wrong. It is the sole measure of morality. Only this man is a tax collector. A habitual thief, perhaps. He's considered an enemy of God's people. And this man comes into the temple with his head bowed low, And his prayer is simple. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that out of these two men, who both had the same view of the law, Jesus said that out of these two men, only one of them went home justified. It was the second man. It was the second man who went home justified. It was him who had the right response to the law. Look how David ends uh, his psalm, verse um, 13 onwards, or 12 onwards. This is how he begins to wrap up uh, his psalm. David's got a right understanding of the law. David, after considering the glory of God in creation, considering the goodness of the law of God, considering how good the law is for us and the benefits of submitting to God's law, how does David conclude? Verse 12 and 13, he concludes with a consideration of his own sinfulness. David's got a right understanding of God's law. He realises that ultimately God's law is given in order to reveal our sin. If you can look into God's law without seeing your own sin, you're either not taking God's law seriously enough, or you're not being honest enough about your own heart. David takes God's law seriously. He knows his own heart will deceive him. He knows he can't even see the extent of his own sinfulness. Look at verse um, 12. Who can discern his errors, he says. Forgive my hidden faults. Who are his faults hidden from? Well, they're not hidden from God, surely. Who are his faults hidden from? David, at the start of the verse, says, who can discern his errors? 
He's saying, I can't even see all the ways in which I've broken your law, God. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Not those faults that are hidden from other people, the faults that are hidden from me. The faults that I can't even see in my own life. David is being serious about God's law and he's saying, God's law shows me the extent of my sinfulness so much so that I can't even plumb the depths of it. Forgive my hidden faults. But if this is what David thinks about himself, how is it possible that he ends verse 13 by saying, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression? How could David be blameless? How can David be so sure that he'll be blameless if he doesn't even know the extent of his own sin? Come on, David. You've been a dimwit, aren't you? How can you be forgiven for the things you've done if you don't know the things you've done wrong? How can you be considered blameless? David can only be sure that he'll be considered blameless because his hope for being blameless, his hope for righteousness, isn't to do with anything in himself. His hope for righteousness is in God. His prayer to God, verse 12, is, God, forgive me. He's asking God to act. His prayer to God, in verse 13, is for God to intervene. Keep me from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then, verse 13, then, only if God acts, only if God responds, then will David be blameless. Then will David be innocent. And it's for that reason that, God clo- uh, that David closes his psalm by calling God his Lord, his rock, and his redeemer. The very last word of the psalm, redeemer. The word that rings in your ears as the song sort of fades off into the background. Redeemer, redeemer, redeemer. God, my redeemer. And for the Christian, of course, this language reminds us of Jesus our Redeemer. If we are ever going to be counted as righteous, if we are ever considered blameless in God's sight, and if you're a Christian, then let me tell you, you are considered blameless in God's sight. But if we're to be considered blameless, it's not because of what we do, but it's only because of what Christ does on our behalf. It isn't because of our obedience. It isn't because of our wisdom. It isn't because of our way of life. It's because of the life Jesus lived for us. Consider the difference between the way this psalm can be sung by you and the way this psalm could be sung by Jesus. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In my mind, I might recognise that the law of God is perfect. I might recognise that it gives life to my soul. But in practice, in the way I live... I show that I'm living like as if life is to be found in in other places. I'm living like true life is is found in, in other things. True satisfaction is found in other things. In anything but God. When Jesus came, when Jesus lived as a man, he was ready even to lay down his own life in order to remain obedient to God. Verse 7 speaks in its fullness through Jesus' life, not through mine. What about verse 8? In my mind, I might be able to agree that the precepts of the Lord are bringing joy to my heart. But in practice, don't I often treat them as though they're a, a drudgery? 
as though there is a bind, as there are, as though there are a restriction. And yes, I might still choose to follow those restrictions because I've got in mind some either some greater good or some good will come of it eventually or in the end it's better for me. But in the act of obedience, I don't consider it a joy sometimes. When Jesus came, he said, I've come not to do my will. His joy, his pleasure, his desire wasn't to do his will. His will was to do the one, uh, to do the will of the one who sent him. Consider verse 9. In my mind, I might agree that the fear of the Lord is pure. But in practice, isn't it my lack of purity that shows that my fear of the Lord is insincere? When Jesus was tempted with the the praise and the pleasure of all the kingdoms of the world, just in return for the worship of him, and the word on Jesus' lips was, no, no, no. Worship the Lord your God and worship him only. Jesus had true fear of the Lord. Only Jesus managed to live out this verse to its full extent. Or consider verse 11. As much as we might benefit from following the commands of God, as much as I might compare the way the culture and the world around me works compared to the way God teaches me to live, as much as I might agree that by being obedient to God there is great reward, great benefit, no one knows this verse as fully as Jesus himself. The reward I might gain from being obedient to God's law is, well, it lasts as long as this earth. But the reward that Jesus obtained by being perfectly obedient to God's law was a reward of vindication from God by being raised from the dead. The reward of all authority in heaven and on earth. The reward of an inheritance of nations given to himself. Jesus is the one who receives this very great reward in return for his obedience. So for the Christian, it's the person and name of Jesus himself who becomes more precious to me than gold. It's Jesus for whom I would forsake all others just to know him and to be with him and to be more like him. For the Christian, it's the person of Jesus who becomes sweeter than honey, even honey from the comb because of the debt that he has paid on our behalf. For the Christian, it's Jesus himself who is our Lord, our rock, our strength, our redeemer. And so for the Christian, the law of God, well, we say, no, it's not a means of righteousness. The law of God is not a means of righteousness. It's not a way for you to get right with God. It never was. It never has been. If you are hoping that when you die and you stand before God at the judgment, if you're hoping that he'll let you into his presence because you really you're a good person, or if you're hoping that he'll let you in because you've been trying your very best, or if you're hoping that he'll let you in because you're not quite as bad as those other people, then in the end you're just like the Pharisee. You've got the right view of the law. The law is good, you might say. Keep it, that's a good thing. But you've not realised that the law is showing you your own sin. For the Christian, the law is not a means of righteousness for us. Yet also, the law is not just a means of highlighting sin. The law is not just a big stick to beat us with. 
Don't do this. Don't do that. Start living like this. Stop doing those things. That's not what the law is. We can agree with David that the law is good. We can agree with him that it's trustworthy and pure and right and sure and perfect and all these other things. Because for the Christian, the debt of our sin, the times that we've broken that law, the times that we've fallen short, the guilt that that comes from the law doesn't sit on our heads. The guilt, the debt has been paid. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so because of what Christ has done for us, the law becomes a description of him. The law becomes a description of the character of our Saviour Jesus. The law is an explanation, a picture, a precise definition of the way Jesus walked, the way he talked, the way he lived, the way he acted, the way he worshipped, the way he loved, the way he cared, the way he resisted. And so for us, obedience to the law then, if that's what the law is, obedience to the law is not a means by which we gain more of his favour. It's not a means to become the teacher's pet. It's not a means to even pay him back in some way for what he's done. The law is not a means of, it's not a big list of do's and don'ts that sort of keep us in Jesus' gang or, or, or get us kicked out. For us, obedience to the law is a means by which we are made more and more like Jesus our Saviour. Obedience to the law is a way for us to emulate him, a way for us to copy him, a way for us to become more like him. It's a way to prepare us for that day that we're hoping for, when we will finally see him and when we will be like him. Obedience to the law is a way for us to become the representatives of Jesus on earth, to become his ambassadors, to be his witnesses in the world, to be his champions, to be his friends. It becomes, in a sense, a means of fellowship with Jesus, living like him, living like he lived, being obedient like he was obedient. So when the world says, ah, the laws of God, they're a restriction, we say they're not a restriction, they're they're freedom. When the world says, ah, the laws of God, they just hold you back from being who you really really want to be, we say, no, 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 the laws of God aren't holding us back, they're preparing us for the future. When the world says, ah, the laws of God, they just stop us doing what we really want to do. We say, no, 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 the laws of God aren't stopping me from doing what I want to do. They're, they're preparing me for who I really want to be. When the world says, the law of God, it just denies us the good things of life. It denies us those things that we most enjoy. We say, no, 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 the law feeds us and teaches us the best things in life. When the world says the law is just used to manipulate or oppress you, we say no. The law is given that I might grow and that I might mature and that I might be strengthened. Only as I live in obedience to God's law, as I become more and more like Jesus Christ every day, my Saviour, who one day I will spend eternity with.